everybody. Welcome back to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and I did say that we were going to wrap up our season on playing the hand you're dealt. But I went on LinkedIn and I found an incredible guest who's agreed to come on. And I think she's actually a fantastic bridge between playing the hand you're dealt and the dream catchers. So without further ado, I would love to introduce you to Danny Fontanesi. Danny is an attorney and the founder of Fontanesi Legal, and she's a mom of an absolutely gorgeous three-year-old boy, and she's currently living over in San Diego. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Danny, I was absolutely inspired by your story on LinkedIn. And what I would love to do is share with our listeners kind of a bit about where you got started, how you ended up where you were, and the hand that you were dealt. So tell us a bit about where you grew up, where you're from, and what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah. So I actually grew up um, uh, in a very remote area of a tiny little island um, in the middle of the Pacific. Um, no, I grew up in Hawaii, but on the North shore of Oahu, which um, is a very, very remote place. My dad was a surfer. My parents were kind of hippies and um, grew up there till I was a teenager. And then we moved over to what we refer to as the mainland, ended up in California, lived in California until, well, until law school, where I moved to the Midwest of the U.S., went to law school there for a few years. And long story short, my now husband and I were doing kind of a long distance dating thing. He decided to move to New Zealand. I don't know if you're familiar with the big Christchurch earthquakes that happened there 10 or so years ago. He's a structural engineer and and structural engineers were really needed in New Zealand at the time. And he moved out there, got a job. I followed him after law school and we built a beautiful lives for ourselves in New Zealand. We became permanent residents of New Zealand. And yeah, I was working as an attorney. He was working as a structural engineer. We were living in Wellington and that's kind of where everything began. So how did you guys meet? So this is, you said you were long distance for a while. Where is he from? He's, he's from uh, San Diego as well. He grew up um, in an area called Carmel Valley. He lived in LA for a while, but Southern California boy, we met through undergrad or uni. One of my good friends from uni was his good friend from high school. So we had known each other for kind of ages and yeah, didn't start dating for, you know, years after we met, but, but yeah, we had been longtime friends. And what did you, so you studied law and 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 that's a postgraduate study in the U S so you studied, did law school in the U S and then you got your barred in the U S and then went over Mm -hmm. to, to New Zealand Mm -hmm. and getting a job in New Zealand from the U S was that a difficult thing for you as a lawyer? You know, it, it wasn't as difficult as I thought. So I envisioned that it was going to be incredibly difficult. And when I went over to New Zealand, I actually went over there with the intention of convincing Matt to come back to the States where, you know, we are both licensed and, you know, I know I could get a job or at least I thought I could get a job, you know, um, he could get a job and we'd be fine. Um, but so I booked a three week ticket to New Zealand to, with that intention. Um, and then about five seconds after I stepped off the plane, I was like, (laughs) okay, this place is pretty magical. Um, wouldn't mind living here, but I don't know how I'm going to transfer my U.S. law degree to New Zealand. Um, so Matt had booked this uh, three-day weekend in the vineyards with some of our friends. It was my birthday weekend and another friend's birthday weekend. And we were just riding bikes through these vineyards, going wine tasting. And um, it was very magical. And sort of later in that afternoon, I found out that one of... Um, his friends that was there was a lawyer. And so I started chatting with him, asking him, so what do you think the odds of a US lawyer getting a job here in New Zealand are? And he was like, oh yeah, you'd be fine. 
<laughs> easy like, as that easy as that yeah, like what <laughs> um and long story short he was like well I can introduce you to um you know a couple people get you some interviews at some firms and you know um or at least get your foot in the door and so yeah he made a few introductions and um I ended up extending my three-week holiday to a seven-week holiday and left with a job offer from one of the top firms in the country. <laughs> Incredible. So we talk to our guests a lot about using your network and sometimes your network is known to you. And sometimes your network gets introduced to you when you're biking around in the vineyards yeah. <laughs> you know, in New Zealand, <laughs> but it's, it's asking those questions and it's, you know, it's a bold thing to do is to say, you know, how can I get a job here? Can you help me do that? And you know, our whole first season is about uh, marvelous mentors and marvelous mentors, are the type of people you tap into to help you navigate systems. And, you know, this is the type of person who I would classify as that unexpected mentor who can help you navigate a system you don't know anything about. And yeah. I love the fact that you went, you know, you went there and you had this open mind to, okay, well, what does this actually look like? Extend your ticket to come back seven weeks later. So you've now secured a job. And are you going back to pack up and come back? Is that the intention? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And it's, and it's funny on that too. You know, I've always had this mindset of there's no mountain too big. There's no, you know, hurdle too big. Like you'll just figure out a way to overcome it. And so an example of this is when Matt, my husband had come back um, to the States, we, you know, to visit from New Zealand, it was over Christmas or whatnot. Um, we had met up and we were trying to figure out, you know, how to make this work. You know, I wanted him to move back to the States. He wanted me to move to New Zealand. And, you know, it was just like, is this going to work or not? Um, and we were walking down the beach. It was, I think the day before he was leaving. And, um, and I said, you know, there's a thousand reasons why we should be together and only one reason why we shouldn't. And he was like, right. But that reason is a really big ocean, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and my response was, so the biggest ocean in the world, like can't, we, we can figure it out, you know? And mm -hmm. that was always my mindset. And, um, and it's funny because, you know, the, he later turned out to very much have that mindset and that's what pulled him through a million things. But, um, <clears throat> but that's just always how I've looked at things like, we'll figure it out, you know, sure. It seems impossible, but there has to be a way. Um, and then, yeah. And then when I, you know, when you're just open, I think to the universe and to possibility and just go in with a mindset of, I will make this work. Um, it's amazing. Like the universe kind of meets you halfway and delivers, you know, people and, and situations to you that, that help, you know, make that happen. And how long had you guys been dating then when he went over um, post Christchurch. So, I mean, it depends on how you define dating. Like it was very like, you know, um, it was more like us trying to figure out how to date, you know, mm. and, um, in this long distance sort of thing. So it was just a lot of, you know, um, I mean, communicating via email and chat and, Zoom or, you know, Skype back in the day and, <laughs> um, and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I don't know if you would even classify it as dating. We were just, we wanted to be dating, but we were just trying to figure out how to make it work. So, so then when you, so he goes off to New Zealand and you guys are just ch chatting with each other and kind of sussing out the long distance relationship regard whatever it was at the time. Mm -hmm. And then he comes over and visits at Christmas and did that kind of cement the relationship? Yeah. Then? Okay. And then, yeah. and then he goes back to New Zealand and then at some point you go back over there and you say, I'm going to stay for three weeks. I'm going to convince him to come back and we're going to end up here. But then you end up getting a job there. You stay for seven weeks, come back. And now you're packing the house up to move yeah. over. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fair. Okay. So how, how long was it just cause I, I love timelines, but how long was yeah. it between sort of that December visit and then you mm. moving over? March 9th was when I arrived in New Zealand. So mm. two months. 
Okay. So quick, quick time session here. We're kind of, we're, we're cycling through pretty quickly. Okay. So you move over there um, and packing up everything, jump on a plane, head off to New Zealand. You land, you have a fabulous job at a wonderful law firm. You've got Matt there. I'm assuming that you guys were dating now. Yes. Okay. We, right. Yes. We were dating now, although we decided not to jump into living together. No. Yes. That know? would be a lot. So, that would be a lot. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. So you guys, you guys are both in New Zealand living there, dating and having a fabulous time. And what mm-hmm. happens then? So, um, so we continue living our lives dating. Um, you know, we go through, um, you know, sort of all the dating cycles, right? I mean, from living apart to eventually moving in together to, um, you know, vacationing together and doing all the, you know, the things that you do. Um, meanwhile, we are going through our our immigration stuff in New Zealand. Um, and we both, you know, got permanent residency there. That was going to be our, our forever home. Um, and let's see in 2013 the end of 2013 matt proposed um and i i had moved there beginning of 2012 so um so yeah so he proposed december 2013 then we went on a fabulous you know holiday it was right before christmas and so in new zealand we got like six weeks off for christmas which was amazing nice Um, and and yeah just went you know to bali and a few other places and um came back and started planning the wedding amazing so we're now in 2014 because we've gone over mm-hmm. new year so we're now in 2014 mm-hmm. and when was the wedding in 2014 no it was um february of 2015 2015 so, okay so another another mm-hmm. year still okay so mm-hmm. massive wedding planning time Wedding's going to be coming up in February, which is summertime down there. Yeah. Beautiful mm-hmm. weather, all the rest of it. Yeah. Family, friends all coming over. Were you guys doing something small? What was it going to, what yeah. was it looking like? Well, yeah. So, so intimate, you know, wedding that we had about 65 guests, I think was the final number, but we had, so we we're living in Wellington, which is the bottom of the North Island. Um, we decided to get married on this little Island off of Auckland called Waiheke Island. That's just this island full of vineyards and like cute little towns. It's like so magical. Um, and so for all our friends and family that were, fly- we had friends flying in and family flying in from literally like all corners of the earth, you know, from, you know, South America to North America, to Europe, to China, to everywhere. Um, and so we planned like a week's worth of events for everyone, you know, so they got there, had a day to rest. Then, you know, then it was, okay, we're, you know, going to this restaurant. We're doing some like bar hopping here through Auckland. Then we're, you know, next day taking the ferry over to Waiheke Island. And then, you know, we're doing a, a wine tour, you know, and then the wedding and then, the, you know, so it was um, just the most magical week of our lives. And all our guests and family and friends like still talk about it. Like that was just so much fun you know yeah I mean it does it sounds magical it sounds incredible (laughs) oh yeah it was it was pretty special so you've got all your family and friends there uh wedding good day lovely day yeah beautiful day just absolutely gorgeous um and we just we got married like on the at this vineyard on the top of this hill so you look out over the ocean and over the like across the bay to the Auckland skyline and um you know you just watch the sunset as we're eating dinner and it was just so so magical um so yes we were on cloud nine um and you know after a week of that everyone returns home we return home to Wellington um and and back to work and back to normal life. And we had planned our honeymoon in because we wanted a honeymoon in the Northern hemisphere. We mm-hmm. wanted to do that in the Northern hemisphere summer. So we got married the end of February, which is the middle of summer in New Zealand. 
we planned a honeymoon end of August, which is middle of summer, Northern hemisphere. So, you know, we go back to life for a few months and then get ready for our honeymoon. Um, and where, where are you going on honeymoon? Where are you guys headed? So you're saying Northern hemisphere. Yeah. So, um, so the States, but we had kind of this tour planned around the state. So it was, um, our first stop was Coeur d'Alene. It's this tiny little town in the Pacific Northwest it's lakes and, um, and just nature. My mom had moved up there and, um, you know, it's just a place that is very special. Um, very, pretty remote. Um, but just, yeah, very beautiful nature. Um, and then after that we were, let's see, we had New York, um, you know, Broadway plays, that kind of thing. Um, DC, uh, and then Southern California. So San Diego, Orange County, and then back to New Zealand, trying to think if I'm forgetting any stops along the way. I think that was it. <laughs> so a nice, nice little tour of the U.S. doing some kind of outdoorsy stuff, doing a bit of city mm-hmm. stuff, seeing the nation's mm-hmm. capital, heading back to California and then heading back home. So just kind of a nice, mm-hmm. nice all around honeymoon. So mm-hmm. how, how did that go for you, Danny? How, how was that honeymoon? Yeah. So, so leading up to the honeymoon. So because it was the middle of winter in New Zealand now, um, you know, there's all these colds and flus and stuff going around and everyone seemed to be out sick with some, you know, gnarly version of something. Um, and so Matt had come down with some cold, um, you know, he couldn't seem to shake for a couple of weeks. Um, mm-hmm. we're like, oh, well, hopefully this goes away by the time we leave. Um, and it did seem to be getting better by the time we left. Um, so we, you know, pack up, get our stuff, leave bright and early at 4am or something on whatever day it was, um, August 21st, can't remember the day of the week, but, uh, we had about 20 something hours of travel, um, between, you know, from New Zealand, we had a stopover in Australia and then we had to fly to LA and then change planes and fly up to Northern Idaho to Coeur d'Alene. So it was easily 20 something, maybe close to 30 hours of travel. And on the flight from Australia to New Zealand, Matt really started to hit a wall. Um, You know, we thought he'd kind of kicked the cold and was on the mend, but he really started feeling sick, like feverish. And, um, and so we're like, okay, well, hopefully, you know, once we get to the States, get in a bed where he can sleep and, you know, not be sitting there on a plane, um, he'll have a chance to catch up, get some rest and recover. So we get to Northern Idaho. We, uh, my, my auntie has some proper, uh, some property on the lake up there. That's, you know, very remote. And we had gone to stay there and just kind of camp and, um, hang out. And Matt just really started just getting worse, you know? Mm. So we thought, well, you know, I don't know, maybe this is, maybe this isn't a cold, maybe it's the flu, um, you know, or I don't know, like maybe it's something that he actually needs antibiotics for. Um, and so by the third day that we were there, you know, of him not making any progress, I finally said, all right, let's just, let's go to the doctor. Let's go to urgent care or whatnot and see if maybe you need some antibiotics or something that can help, you know, speed this along. And so I drove him into town to this, um, we actually ended up going to like an emergency room. So that's what was available. And we tell the doctor we're here on our honeymoon. We, you know, he seems to be sick. Like, we don't know if it's the flu or whatnot, but if there's anything you can give him to help move this along, um, that would be really appreciated because we have a lot of traveling ahead of us. Mm. And so the doctor was super nice. This really, you know, kind of jovial man. And um, he was like, okay, let's, let's get you better, better. Let's get you back out there. Um, started Matt on some IVs to rehydrate him. And then Matt started feeling better almost immediately. And we're like, okay, awesome. Right. Like maybe that's all he needs and we'll be on our way. Um, so about 
maybe 45 minutes later, um, maybe a little less, the doctor comes back into the room and Matt is sitting there reading a magazine and I'm, you know, on my phone or whatnot. And he comes in and he just looks completely pale and shaken. Hmm. And me and Matt are looking at each other like, God, I wonder what happened in the room next to ours, you know, like must've been something pretty bad. Like this, this guy, his whole demeanor has changed since we saw him 45 minutes ago. Hmm. Um, and he kind of looked at us, was kind of looking down and kind of having a hard time making eye contact. And he said, well, I have some good news and I have some bad news. And we're like, okay, um, what's the good news? And he said, the good news is that you don't have the flu. And that was really our main concern. So that was a huge relief for us. Like, okay, great. So it should just be something he needs antibiotics for, you know, maybe the doctor considers that more serious, but to us, antibiotics would be, you know, a good thing to just get on it and hopefully feel better in a day or two. Um, and he said, the bad news is that you don't have any white blood cells. Mm. And I didn't really know what that meant. Um, I was looking at Matt's face and Matt, I think had an idea of what that meant because he looked very serious. And so I'm asking the doctor, well, well, what does that mean? You know, and he boiled it down to essentially what it means is that you have a, a very serious disease, something either like AIDS or a blood cancer. And I was sitting there like, or, or like what else? Mm. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me shaking his head. Like, that's it. There, there is no, what else? Like mm. you have no white blood cells. Um, and this is serious. And he said, I'm admitting you to the hospital. Um, you need to go into the isolation unit because you have no immune system and any, any germ could kill you right now. And if you hadn't have come to the hospital when you did, you would have been dead within two weeks and things obviously changed in an instant. Um, we found ourselves in this isolation unit. I went to open the window and there, the nurses came in like, you can't open the window. Like the spores from the plants outside could kill them if you breathe them in. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Um, so what can I do? What can't I do? You know, we had to wear these, um, what we all know now is N95 masks. We had never heard of them. Um, and that's, that's where sort of everything began was in that tiny hospital room in this regional hospital, um, in Northwestern in Northern Idaho. Um, and then things just got worse from there. So, um, yeah, we were, um, two days later, they started him on, um, chemo, uh, after they did a bone marrow biopsy, you know, came back, he had acute myeloid leukemia. Um, they started him on chemo and he was declining rapidly. Mm. Um, and he needed to get up out of bed to use the bathroom. And I went to help him out of bed and he kind of took two steps and then just passed out in my arms and collapsed on the floor. And he's, you know, six foot three and I'm five, five and a half and trying to, you know, hold him up was challenging. And I'm screaming for the, you know, doctors and nurses and the code team rushes him in his vitals had completely coat, you know, he had coded, um, and they rushed him up to ICU and, um, you know, long story short, it was a lot of, um, you know, me asking doctors and nurses, like, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be okay? And, and the answer that I would get would just be, 
do you have family here? Mm. Like, do you have someone you can call? And, and like that, that doesn't matter. Like I just, he's going to be okay. Right. Like, and no one would answer that question for me. Um, so it was a very, yeah, a very obviously traumatic and, um, yeah, sobering time. Um, we eventually, once Matt stabilized enough because he was in a very, you know, touchy position, um, they were able to get him a life flight, um, to a major cancer center. Um, there were five, um, in the States that, you know, would be able to provide the sort of level of treatment that he needed. Um, he needed a bone marrow transplant, um, and just very intensive care. And so, um, they transferred us to, uh, UC San Diego, which is how we (laughs) ended up back here, um, (laughs) through, you know, no, uh, planning of our own, Mm -hmm. but they have, um, an incredible cancer center here in San Diego. And, um, so, yeah, so we arrived at the bone marrow transplant unit. Um, it was on September 11th of 2015. And I remember he was the sickest person on the bone marrow transplant unit, which is known as being the sickest floor on the hospital. And we were wheeled into this room and we were waiting for our nurse to come in. Um, and everyone who looked at Matt just kind of gasped, you know, I mean, he just looked horrible. Um, and the nurse walked in and started talking to him for a few minutes and, and then just said, you're going to make it. And I was so taken aback. I had been waiting for so long for someone, anyone to tell me that he would just make it through Mm. the night, like not Mm. make it full stop. Just tell me he's going to make it through the night. And Mm. no one would tell me that. And there, this nurse walked in and she's like, you're going to make it within, you know, less than five minutes of meeting him. And I looked at her and I said, how do you know that? You know? And she's like, I can tell, I can tell by his attitude. And she's like, I can tell within five minutes of meeting anyone, whether or not they're going to make it through this journey. This is a very rough journey and you have to have the right attitude and the right mindset. And if you do, you'll make it. And I was just like, that was everything we needed to hear in that moment. And And it was a hundred percent true. You know, Matt had this incredible strength and determination to just, you know, as like his, his odds, if you will, um, of survival were quite low. We always refused to actually hear the odds. We told, you know, the doctor would say like, okay, well, you know, statistics, we'd be like, no, no, uh -uh. Mm -hmm. we do not Mm want to know any statistics. Mm -hmm. Matt was just like, odds are for other people. I'm one of one. Um, and that was the attitude we took with us everywhere. And, um, you know, we ended up spending the next year living in hospitals and isolation, um, going through this very, very challenging, um, period. And, you know, that, mindset of just, you know, it doesn't matter what anyone else says, what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter what statistics are. It doesn't matter what anything is like we can, and we will get through this. Um, and ultimately we did. I I just, I absolutely want to pull that phrase out. Odds are for other people. I am one of one. You are an individual. You are somebody, you know, yes, fine. Nine out of 10 people don't make it through this, but that does not matter. What matters is what am I going to do about this? How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to get through this? And I love the fact that, you know, when we started talking, you talked about the fact that there was an ocean between you guys and there were, you know, thousands of reasons for you to be together and one for you not to be. And it's almost like, you know, there's one thing that could separate you now, 
but there's thousands of things that can keep you together. And it's almost fighting for that to, to keep mm-hmm. you guys going. And I mean, what an, what an incredibly intense first year of marriage. I mean, just to, you know, yeah. understate it massively. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is just, it's unbelievable. And so you're spending your first year now. I just, I mean, I'm automatically the practical side of me is you're an attorney. You're supposed to be in the office and you're sitting in a, in a hospital room. He's a structural mm-hmm. engineer. He's supposed to be doing his job and he's in a hospital. You are not in a hospital in a country where you're paying taxes or have insurance. Did you have travel insurance? Were you guys able, did it cover this kind of thing? Like the worst place in the world, everyone knows to get sick is the yeah. United States for money, best <laughs> yeah. for care, worst for money. <laughs> great if you can access the care, yeah, yeah, not exactly. so great if you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, all very relevant questions that, um, so to answer your first question about, or one of your questions about travel insurance, I think Mm. that's the most important of these. So funny enough, before we had left for the States, um, I, it was on my agenda to purchase travel insurance. And, uh, during our wedding, my stepdad had actually suffered like a, a heart event. It was not quite a heart attack, but it was, you know, a major event where he had to be airlifted off the Island that we were on and transported to a um, hospital in, in Auckland. And it was, you know, very shocking and very, you know, scary. Um, but uh, you know, it, it ended up being fine, but you know, it, it made us all very aware that, Oh yeah, you need travel insurance. So, um, uh, I don't know, probably a couple of weeks before we left, it's like, Oh, I need to tick this off. I need to buy travel insurance. And I remember doing it after work one night and being on my computer and looking at these different policies and just being overwhelmed. Like I, I can't, I, I don't want to read all these policies. Like there's this one here, that one there, this one's hundred bucks more, but it's unlimited. Like I'm going with that one. I'm done with it. I'm going to bed. Wow. And Yeah. Um, talk about a hundred bucks well spent right there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was less than a hundred bucks more. I think it was like $50 more or something, but yeah, it was, um, a very good decision that, um, you know, was, uh, made in a very tired state. Yeah. And of course though, you know, you don't expect something major like this to happen. Neither does the travel insurance companies. There was a lot of battling that, mm-hmm. um, that happened there. Um, and I always say that like my law degree paid for itself just in the insurance battles that ensued, but, um, but we did get there in the end. And then, um, because we were American citizens, but so we're American citizens, but we weren't living here at the time. So we didn't, qualify for any of the American benefits. Um, so long story short, we ended up having to move here in order to qualify for the benefits that would pay for his transplant and everything else. And so, cause you had to get um, resident, residency status, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the the short version of how all that um, <laughs> worked out. So but, you, you end up, you end up being in San Diego. You're now, you're now, he's now permanently living in the hospital, presumably while he's waiting yeah. on the donor list. Is that? Yeah. So we'd, we'd be in the hospital for like a month or two at a time. And then we'd get released to, there's this transplant house. So there's, um, hospital housing basically for transplant patients. So it's right next to the hospital, but it's your own little isolated, um, apartment essentially. So we're kind of bouncing between that, just depending on his, you know, current state and yeah. And what happened with donors? So, um, he has two siblings. Um, the doctor said, you know, there's a good chance of, um, I assume you're talking about bone marrow donors. Yes. Yeah. Um, I said, there's a good chance of finding a match in either his brother or his sister. Um, Both his siblings tested. His brother wasn't a perfect match. His sister was. Um, And and the doctor said, even if he 
even if one of his siblings isn't a perfect match, you know, we probably will be able to find a, a 10 out of 10 just because there's so many donors that come out of Germany of all places. Um, apparently, apparently people are required to um, get on the donor list in Germany. I, I don't know if it's a military thing or something, but Germany has by far the most um, bone marrow transplant donors in the world. So wow. yeah, so found a perfect match um, and then went through the bone marrow transplant process, which is um, crazy. They, you know, inject you with this poison, essentially this really, really intense chemo that kills off all your blood. Um, so it puts all your blood cells into what they call the death cycle. And then they keep you alive via um, blood transfusions. And then for about two weeks or something, and then they put the new stem cells in, and then those new stem cells start to grow and um, turn into your new blood. And eventually you get to a place where you no longer need blood transfusions. Amazing. Yeah. And was his sister, his donor then in the end, or was it somebody from Germany? Yeah. No, it was his sister. His sister. And it took for him. It did. It did. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It, again, there were some hiccups along the way as there is with everything. Um, and it took about twice as long to, you know, to kind of reach the levels that we're supposed to be at, but we got there in the end and, um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. And it was very much, um, you know, just about that mindset. Like I always think back to, um, so his mom was living in New York at the time, that's mom. And she was walking by the New York library one day. And she said, you know, there's these two, uh, marble lions that flank the side of the, um, the New York library. And one was named patience and the other fortitude. I believe. Um, and she said, these lions just, she was writing Matt a letter and she said, these lions remind me of you. Like, this is what you had to, um, you know, just exhibit from the time you've gone through all this, just patience and fortitude. And just that constant belief that no matter how many setbacks you face, you will get there in the end. And so often it felt like we were, we'd take like half a step forward and then we'd get thrown two steps back. And it, and it was like, how are we going to get back to, you know, that half a step forward? And we just have to keep putting one toe in front of the other, in front of the other, and, um, and just keep that patience, keep that fortitude, keep that belief, and just know that in the end, we will get there. And it took, a long time. Um, but you know, we got there. And when, when was he able to walk out of the hospital then? When were they, when was he able to leave? So we were able to leave, you know, a, a few different times, but it was when he was discharged, out, like kind of, kind of discharged. I know you have to go back yeah. for, you know, to make sure yeah. you're all the rest so, of it, but so that was the beginning of December. 2015. Um, yeah, I don't know the exact date, but it was the beginning of December, 2015. And I remember when he walked out of the hospital, you know, we had been living in this isolation room. So negative airflow, just, there's no smells, there's no anything. And when I, he was in a wheelchair and I wheeled him out into the parking lot and he, he started crying going to make me cry. Um, and he, and he said, it smells like flowers. And Aww. it's like, oh my gosh, like we're in a parking lot, but he hasn't smelt, you know, the outside in mm. so long that to him, this parking lot, smells like nature, you know, and sure there, there was some grass and some, you know, <laughs> flowers around on the edges, I guess. But, um, you know, for most of us, we would never notice it. And for him, it was, you know, the best thing he'd smelled and as long as he could remember. 
Amazing. So we're now towards the end of end of 2015. Um, you guys are kind of coming up to almost being married for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now been released from the hospital. Was there a reason why you didn't get back on a plane and go back to New Zealand? Yeah. So the long story is that we couldn't like he, even though he was discharged from the hospital, we had to, we were tethered to the hospital. So mm-hmm. he needed, you know, blood transfusions and stuff still like we, um, he needed various infusions, you know, he, um, tons of stuff. So we spent half our days in the hospital, just in the outpatient section, even for like a year. Um, and then after that year, you know, we, we had been living here for so long and we had these relationships with his doctor, his, uh, being his bone marrow transplant doctor, um, and just the staff in the hospital, whatever, and they become your family. And, you know, it, it's too scary to think of leaving them. Um, and, you know, and ultimately, you know, there were still times over like the next couple of years that, you know, we're in and out of the hospital, but much less frequently than that first year. So, so we just, decided for now, we're just, you know, we couldn't make any long-term decisions, but it was like for this week or for this month, we're staying here. Um, and then when it finally came time for us to return to work, like when we had been, um, you know, when Matt didn't have to go into outpatient care as much and, um, and he was able to be around other people, you know, once his immune system, um, came online, uh, he got a job, um, at a structural engineering firm close to us. Um, and he would just go to the hospital in the morning, three days a week, do his blood labs, get whatever transfusions he needed and then go to work. And, um, yeah. And, and for me, you know, that was such a huge milestone, obviously going back to work. And it was like, finally, finally, we get to go back to work and like, finally we get to make, have an income again, you know, I mean, that was a really challenging time. Um, and we had relied on a lot of support from friends and families and strangers to get through that. Um, but you know, I was desperate to get back to work and, you know, at this point we were out of money and didn't know how we were going to continue paying for anything. Um, and so Matt got a job quite easily. And then I tried applying for attorney jobs, you know, corporate counsel um, or, you know, in-house counsel at, at companies here in San Diego or, you know, being a, an associate at a law firm. And, you know, long story short, I don't know. I don't know if it was the fact that you know, I had just my only recent experience was a overseas experience. And then I had a a year gap of employment. Um, and I'm sure the second anyone Googled me, um, they'd see our story had made, you know, international headlines. And so I'm sure that the second anyone Googled me, they'd be like, Oh, okay. She has a lot of drama going on in her life. (laughs) I don't know if we (laughs) want to take that on. So so yeah, so no one would hire me. And, you know, I, on paper, thought I ticked all the boxes, you know, Mm. and it was so shocking to me, like, I actually like offered to work for uh, law firms and things for free, just so they could see like, you know, I'm good at what I do. No one would take the chance. And And they would say, Oh, um, no, that'd be a violation of minimum wage laws. I'm like, then just pay me minimum wage. Like, oh yeah, no, we can't do that either. (laughs) I'm I'm offering you a lawyer for minimum wage. Come on people. (laughs) Yeah. And, and they wouldn't. And so I had to really get creative in trying to rebuild my career from scratch. And, um, you know, I kind of, you know, we're at rock bottom at that point and I had nothing more to lose and was like, okay, 
how do I get back up? What do I do from here? And I just started, you know, reaching out to, to friends and, you know, does anyone know anyone that works at a law firm that, you know, has some extra need that I could help with or that, you know, um, and so I, we did have some friends, you know, sort of say, oh, you know, I have this friend who might need some extra, you know, contract work, you know, sort of part-time or, so I started picking up odd jobs like that and just, um, and just demonstrating, you know, that I can, I can work well. Um, I'm, you know, give me a chance. I'm good at what I do. And, um, I was getting paid very, very little for these opportunities, but, um, but I just kept putting myself out there and I was getting flooded with so many rejections that I finally decided to turn it around. And instead of taking each rejection as a, I've been, you know, rejected now 20 times this week. Um, I just thought, well, there is a finite number of rejections out there. I don't know what that number is, but the universe knows what it is. Like I have to be rejected X number of times before I finally get a yes. And so I'm just going to look at each rejection as one step closer to a yes. And so I'm going to celebrate each rejection as an accomplishment because I'm one step closer. And so then I set these goals for myself, see how many times you can get rejected this week. And so I just go and like, you know, apply and do all these different things in all sorts of different areas. Um, and it took the sting out of rejection. Um, and eventually led me to, um, to making enough connections and meeting enough people that I started, like I was consulting for a company that was a spinoff of Deloitte. And then they, um, introduced me to another company that, um, was a startup in Silicon Valley. They ended up buying out my contract, um, with, uh, RGP was the name of it. So this Deloitte spinoff and I ended up becoming, um, their lead in-house counsel, um, and met a lot of incredible people and just grew this network in Silicon Valley through that one opportunity. And I was making like a tiny, tiny hourly wage when I first started that. Um, when I was working as a consultant and then, you know, I don't know, I think I quadrupled my income or something, you know, within six months and then, um, and then it continued to go on, you know, up from there. And then, um, I eventually decided, um, to start my own practice and, um, have, used, you know, everyone, all the connections I've made along the way to just grow my own practice. And I will say that, you know, the thing I was most scared about in all of this, and that people warned us about is, is being public with our story, because it's such a vulnerable story. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in work and in life, like, you know, everyone is all about, you know, exhibiting strength and, you know, showing that you're just, you know, talking about everything you've achieved and, you know, oh, I went to school here and I worked at this place and I did, you know, did all these right things. And no one wants to just say, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I've done. And here's where I'm going, or here's where I'm trying to go. Cause that's just, kind of frowned upon. Um, and so when, uh, when Matt was sick and I had started this blog that was, you know, initially just this blog that was meant to keep family and friends updated. And it was, um, a private, you know, thing, password protected or whatever. Um, and then I eventually made that blog public. Um, and then it went on to, you know, kind of go, viral. And, you know, that's what ultimately led to, um, us, you know, our story ended up, you know, on sort of the frontline headlines of all these, um, media outlets across the world. And then everyone was like, oh my gosh, like now, now you're never going to get a job. So now everyone knows, you know, what you've been through. 
But instead, it has done the complete opposite. It's like people who are thinking about working with me as an attorney will Google me and then they'll see like that I went through this thing and they will relate to me in some way. And what I've learned is that people care more about you as a human than what you've accomplished, you know? So they're not hiring me because, because I went to this law school and I worked at this company and I worked at that law firm. They don't care. Honestly, I don't think any of my clients even know any of those things about me. Like what they know is that I am a strong person and I am a determined person and I'm a vulnerable person and I'm a human. And that's what they want to work with is humans. And I think so much of that just gets lost in our current society, you know, and um, yeah, just the sort of liberty that came with um, just being open, being myself, allowing that to just be out there in the world and to not be scared of it and to not be afraid of what people are going to think of me if they know that, you know, I was, I mean, literally we were homeless for a while, like just living in a hospital, not knowing where we were going to sleep once we got discharged from the hospital. And that's a very vulnerable thing to admit to the world. Um, but people don't care. And they, that doesn't make them not want to work with me. That makes them think, okay, I feel like I know you a little better and you seem like a nice person and a good person to work with. And that um, is what has allowed me to rebuild um, my career anyway. And I think that's, I mean, your tenacity, your fortitude, your attitude, all that comes through in spades. And I imagine your blog that would come through too. And, and people hearing the story as well. Um, and I just, there's so, so much in what you've said. And I just want to pick up on a couple of things that I absolutely loved. And that's around that idea of not having to, in certain times in your life, not being able to make those long-term decisions. And actually your long-term is tomorrow. Your long term's getting through the end of the week, your long term, maybe even to the next month, but mm-hmm. actually giving yourself a break and recognizing like right now, I imagine your long term is a lot more than tomorrow, the next week, the next month. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a point in time. And I think it's so important to pull this out is if you're struggling through something, get through today, get through tomorrow. Yep. And later on, it may be that you have a longer perspective but just give yourself that grace and that ability to be able to deal with the situation you're in and not feel like you have to be like everybody else around you. Mm-hmm. 100%. And the other thing I absolutely loved was about the fact that people care more about your humanity than they care about your pedigree. And it's actually when you're able to, I, you know, I'm, I'm an executive coach. That's, that's my job now. And what I do a lot of times is I have people go through, if they're applying for jobs is what is your story? What can you share with that employer that makes you unique? Because just on paper, you can make yourself look exactly the same as everybody else, but what is your story? And you have this incredible story. And again, that, that fortitude, that tenacity, as I said, that ability to get through things, that strength, but your, your rejection letter story is my favorite. I had bought myself a bottle of Dom Perignon after I graduated law school in order to get my first job. And so I put the bottle in the fridge. And I used the box to put my, what turned out to be a lot of rejection letters <laughs> into the box. And I remember I was sitting there and I, I had, there was a day when I had applied. So I got a fellowship and you have to apply for jobs within the government. And the main institution I wanted to work for was the CIA. And on one day I got two rejection letters. I'd only sent one application and got two rejection letters from the CIA. <laughs> like not only no, but hell no. Right. And I'm sitting there and I'm like on the floor with these rejection letters, crying my eyes out. And I opened up the box of Don Perignon. And I was like, forget this. Took all the rejection letters out, burned them and drank the bottle of champagne. <laughs> and it was and I love the fact that you actually just turned it around the next day, by the way, I got hired, which was, and I love, but I love the idea. Yes. Department of commerce. Come on guys. They're awesome. 
But I love the <gasps> fact that each one of those was getting you a step closer to that last rejection mm-hmm. letter. And actually for you, you ended up starting your own business. So your last mm-hmm. rejection letter was from somebody else, but you took this acceptance by um, RGP. You brought that all together and you ended up just using your network, using the people you've met. And now you have this thriving practice, helping startups where you're their in-house counsel, you're the general counsel for them. And if we have anybody that's listening, who's part of a startup, where can they find you? Cause I, I'm sure anybody yeah. would want to hire you as their lawyer, now, <laughs> but where can they find you? Um, so my website is fontanessilegal.com. So, um, and, and we'll put that, we'll put that in the, um, in the comments okay. around, yeah, around this, uh, around the podcast. So that's fabulous. So fontanessilegal.com. And mm-hmm. your blog, is it still live? If people Google that, it, will they be able is. to find that? Okay. It is. Yeah. I mean, if you Google me, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. But um, it's team, either teamfontanessi.com. We've also shortened it, shortened it to teamfont.com since fontanessi is a little harder to spell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Teamfont.com. And um, we didn't even get to talk about the fact that you actually ended up having a child as well, which I know is miraculous when someone's yeah. gone through this amount of chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. But again, just, uh, I mean, such, such beauty coming out of all of this. It's, it's amazing what you've done with this and your attitude and that your approach to life, it is inspirational. And that's why I was so, so mm-hmm. pleased that you said you'd come on our show. Oh. And unfortunately, we're completely running out of time. And I have to ask you our last two questions. Yeah. Um, so the first question, obviously, the podcast is called The Undiscovered You. So mm-hmm. what have you discovered about yourself on this incredible journey? So what I've discovered is that you, like you, the broader you, as in I am capable of anything essentially that life throws at me, I am capable of handling that, which I would never have thought before all of this, that I was capable of handling anything that we have gone through the past six or seven years. And we have like this toolbox, I think that life gives us with all these tools, most of which we don't ever use or even know they're there. But when life throws something crazy at us, we can access that toolbox and be like, Oh, here's a tool. I didn't know I had. All right. And yeah. So I would say that is the biggest thing that this has taught me. And we always ask the final question, which is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? So I'm going to say two here. So one was um, from a professor in law school who said, don't have a plan, have a general direction and take advantage of opportunity as it arises. And I think if we have a plan, we can get so stuck on this plan that if things don't go exactly to plan, then we're completely thrown off. Hmm. Whereas if we have a general direction that we're heading and we're just open to what life brings to us along the way, we will be so much better and happier for those opportunities accepting those opportunities that would have otherwise, um, slipped by us. Um, so that, and then just, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, um, or as Henry Ford put it, you know, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're probably right. Love that. Um, yeah. And yeah. I just, I, I love the whole idea of not having, have, not having a very specific set plan. And I also just adding to that is, that also decreases the likelihood of failure because Mm -hmm. if you have a very specific plan and it doesn't go specifically within those parameters, you feel that's failure. Whereas actually, if you have this general direction and you're sort of going in that direction, that, that sense of failure is gone. And maybe you're learning from mistakes. You're learning from things that you've done along the way, but you don't have that overwhelming. I did not achieve blob. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's, that's incredible. And, and I love what you, what you're talking about, what you discovered about yourself along the way, the fact that you have this toolbox that you can pull from, and it might be that you're not even shown those tools until you need them. And Mm -hmm. so just recognizing that you have the strength to get through tomorrow, you have the strength to get through what you're going through, keeping that positive attitude, having that fortitude, you know, having that belief and that tenacity and just going forward. I just, 
it's this has been incredible and i thank you so much danny for coming on the show well thank you and i do hope that you'll come and um, have a drink with me when you're next in london yes yes tottenham game excellent <laughs> excellent all right. all right thanks a million yeah thanks so much I hope you enjoyed this week's bonus episode of Playing the Hand You Were Dealt. If you're looking for an executive coach or just want to get in touch, check out my website at kljconsulting.co.uk or you can email me on the Undiscovered You podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, like, and comment below. And I hope that you're one step closer to discovering the Undiscovered You.